So uh, this part of the story that we're picking up, Elijah is on a mountain. And as Christian said, it is Mount Sinai. So in the Bible, it's called Mount Horeb, but it's widely known that this is Mount Sinai. Just a little bit of detail for you so you can imagine it. It is uh, 2.2 kilometers high, so it's twice the height of Snowdon and a quarter of the height of Everest, so a decent-sized mountain. And if you count your steps, then it would take you 3,750 steps. So if you've got a Fitbit, that's, that's quite a good amount for your daily quota. I don't have one. I don't want to know how many steps I do. Um, and so this mountain had huge significance to the Israelites. Um, it, if we look at the story of Moses, there's so much that happened on this mountain <clears throat> to Moses. Um, there was uh, the incident of the burning bush where Moses uh, hears God's voice for the first time speaking through a bush that is on fire. Um, there's another time where there's no water available and so Moses um, hits a rock and water comes out of it. And there's also the time when Moses got the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai. And Elijah will have known this. He'll have known that this is a, a holy place. It was actually considered that God might live on this mountain. And so Elijah, as we talked about last week, had reached rock bottom. He was at the end of his tether. He prayed that he would die. And then he traveled for 40 days and he's running away from Jezebel. He's running away from death. But he's also running away from his calling. He's running away from his vocation. He's trying to get away from everything. But he's come to the mountain of God. Is that a coincidence? I don't know if he intended to go there, if he wanted to go to this mountain of God, or if it's kind of just where he ended up. But I wonder if he's come here looking for a supernatural experience like the one Moses had. I wonder if he's hoping to capture something supernatural of God to get him back on the right path. And he's hiding in this cave when he hears God speak to him. Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, coming from an all-knowing, omnipresent God... This is not a literal question. God knows exactly what he's doing here. It's a little bit like the story of Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit um, and they're hiding from God because they are embarrassed and they're experiencing shame. And God says to them, God calls out, where are you? And he knows where they are. He's not asking for his benefit. He's asking for their benefit. God knows exactly what Elijah is doing here but he wants relationship he wants relationship with Elijah and he wants relationship with us even though he knows what's going on he still wants us to talk to him about it he wants to be part of the journey so Elijah replies I've been working my heart out for you the people of Israel have abandoned their agreement with you destroyed the places of worship and murdered your prophets I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Now, this is an answer that has shows Elijah's loyalty and his faithfulness, but more than anything, it shows his frustration, his despair, and his total isolation in this task. 
He prayed that he would die and he's got nothing left to give. And right here on this mountain, miles away from civilization, from friends, from family, he's feeling more isolated than ever. He's lost his identity. He's lost his purpose. He's the only prophet left, he says. All the others have been killed or maybe they've rejected their faith. And it's been years, literally years and years and years since he's lived a normal life. How can he possibly continue with this call? And how does God respond to this? He says, go and stand out on the mountain and get ready, Elijah. I'm going to pass by. And then what happens is pretty weird and maybe a little bit confusing because a hurricane rips the rocks apart. An earthquake then hits. And to top that, a fire starts. So I just want to stop there and go, what? Like, sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we kind of just accept these things as normal. That isn't normal. If you were on a mountain and then a hurricane hit, that would be pretty weird. But a hurricane and an earthquake and then fire, as if fire just passes by, like, casually. That is all a little bit weird, right? So surely this is it. This is God revealing himself to Elijah. Isn't that what you'd be thinking? This is the supernatural encounter that Elijah has come for. This is what Moses experienced, fire and drama and weather. This is it, right? All of these things are known precursors to God's presence in the Bible. These types of weather occur five times in the Old Testament, and they often symbolize the might and judgment of God. And given that um, that Elijah has not long prayed that he would die, I'd also be wondering, is this it? Is this my death? This is what I prayed for. Is this how I'm going to die? Now, it's also worth noting that God told Elijah to go out onto the mountain and be ready, but he doesn't actually do that. He stays in the cave. Now, God doesn't ever bring this up and say, why didn't you do what I asked? But I wonder if it was wise that he stayed in the cave because there was an earthquake and hurricane and fire, so maybe he was protecting himself. But if this was God revealing himself, he's also massively risked missing out. And when we're under pressure, isn't it easy to make assumptions or make mistakes or think we know what we're doing? Um, I've got a story from when I was, uh, when I was young. My, in my childhood, I was really um, good at cross-country running, and so was my younger sister. She's two years younger than me. Um, so thankfully, we never had to race each other. Um, and I remember this one uh, race that I went to to watch her. And so the, re- um, the race was on a big field. So they started at this end of the field. They went all the way around the field. And then they had to go through some woodlands, out the other end of the woodlands, and then back to the, the start, well, that's where the finish line was. So it's about 50 girls, uh, age seven and eight. They're on the start line, off they go. My sister's in the lead straight away. That's how she did things. She was always just out in the lead. So by the time they got round to the woodlands, she's about 20 foot ahead of the rest of the pack into the woodlands. What was unusual here is the person in second place was my sister's best friend, Faye Askey. And Faye Askey had never been in second place before. So she's starting to panic a little bit as she enters the woods. Um, Unfortunately, she she hadn't walked the track beforehand. So she's also not entirely sure where she's going. Anyway, we're all watching from the start line. 
and um, we're sort of tracking where they probably are. And then my sister comes out of the woodlands at the other end. She gets 10 foot away from the woodlands. Great, still in the lead, 20 foot away. Brilliant, she's holding a lead. 30 foot away, still no sign of the other girls. 40 foot, 50 foot. She's coming right around the field now and the, there's no one else coming out of the woodlands. <laughs> she eventually gets to the finish line and there's still no sign of anyone else. Now this is 50 seven-year-old girls lost in the woodlands. So at this point, the dads are like taking off their coats and they're starting to run. I was a very responsible nine-year-old, so I was also running. I was like, I'll find them, don't worry. So it turns out what had happened is Faye Askey didn't know where she was going. She was under pressure. She was feeling panicky because she had all these girls right behind her. She'd never been in second place before and she wanted to be second. And she turned right instead of left and led everyone into a random farmer's field full of cows. So when we found the girls, they're literally just walking around this field, not sure where they are or where they're supposed to go. So the race had to be rerun and Faye came about 30th. She never, ever went into second place again. But that's just to say, sorry, <laughs> she tried. So that's just to say that when we're under pressure, it's so easy to make those assumptions that we know what we're doing, we feel the panic, we feel you know, the weight of what's going on behind us. And Elijah could have done that here in this story. He, he could have assumed that God was speaking in these dramatic weather conditions because that's kind of what he was expecting and what he was waiting for. But... God, um, sorry, Elijah knows God and he knows his voice and he knows how he does things. So Elijah emerges knowing that those things weren't God and his face is covered and that's when he hears the quiet whisper, the gentle voice of God. And God asks the same question. So Elijah now tell me, what are you doing here? Isn't it interesting that God asks the same question? Is he looking for a different answer? Is he hoping now that Elijah will suddenly remember his vocation, dig deep and, and change his ways? But Elijah gives the exact same answer. I've been working my heart out for you, God, because the people of Israel have abandoned the promise. They've destroyed your places of worship and they've murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me. In Elijah's lowest moment, when he's praying for death, when he's given up hope, God comes and speaks to him, not to destroy him or to condemn him, but to communicate his closeness, his gentleness. He came to talk with him, not to shout at him or judge him, and he comes with intimacy. But what I find really interesting is in that moment, God has, um, Elijah hasn't been miraculously healed. He doesn't suddenly feel better. He doesn't suddenly remember his identity. And God's presence, whether it's dramatic or quiet, hasn't actually renewed life. And I say that because God's love and God's truth can do that. It can renew us. And it can bring us out of our darkness and it can make everything better, but it doesn't always and it doesn't hear. Elijah is saying the same thing even after God has spoken to him. He's still frustrated. He's still isolated. And it's what happens next that's vital. 
It's really easy to miss this bit out when we're reading this story. It's got some long names in, and, you know, it's easy to wash over that bit. God says, go back the way you came, through the desert to Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael, make him king over Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, make him king over Israel. And finally, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. So God's whole story, God's whole narrative so far has been dramatic. If you look at Noah, who had to build an ark to save a few while everyone else was killed. Moses, who led the entire Israelite people out of Egypt and to freedom. In fact, we were watching The Prince of Egypt the other day with my um, children, and it got to bedtime, and I was like, we've got to turn it off now. We'll watch the rest tomorrow. And my seven-year-old goes, oh, please, Mum, can we just watch the bit where he goes, let my people go? That's like his favorite bit, because it's the most courageous bit of Moses' story, where he demands that his people are let go. Look at Joshua, who finally, after 40 years of waiting, reaches the promised land. And the walls of Jericho come down just by them walking around, making loads and loads of noise. Look at Jonah, who tried to run away from God's call, but got eaten by a whale and spat out again. (laughs) Even Elijah's story until now has been dramatic, fed by ravens, looked after by a widow, hunted, and living in exile. And so with all that context behind Elijah, it's really surprising that this encounter isn't dramatic. Obviously, it is dramatic, but God isn't in the drama. God can and does speak to us through the big stuff, but this is God revealing himself as an intimate father, someone who is gentle, kind, someone who doesn't judge us but gets alongside us. And so it's action rather than feeling that God offers Elijah. God doesn't say, I love you, you're my son, you're my prophet, everything will be okay. And he also doesn't make it okay. God could send fire to kill Jezebel and make Elijah's life a lot better. But Elijah is called back to action, to the fight in which God needs him. Not because he feels like it, but because that's what his job is. But he's also called to community. In his depression and in his isolation, he hasn't realized that there's people out there who are ready to help him, people that can be given positions of responsibility. And immediately following this bit of the story, God gives him, gives Elisha as companion. So no longer will Elijah be the heroic figure acting alone. What really stands out to me in this story is God's still, small voice, which gently calls us to action and to community. God is encouraging Elijah, you can do it, but you can't do it alone. And so he sends some people to help. I can so relate to how Elijah feels. Admittedly, I've never had to run for my life from an evil queen. But I have been stretched in every direction, trying to be a good mum, a good wife, a good church leader, um, a good line manager, make sure I exercise regularly and eat healthily. Actually, when I first graduated from university, which was 15 years ago, 
Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, so I moved from Loughborough up, up to York, and I got a job at Terry's Chocolate Factory, which um, was open at the time, and I was doing recruitment there. Um, absolutely amazing place. There was a room the size of this where they put all the waste chocolate, which was perfectly edible, just not perfect enough, and you could eat as much of it as you wanted. You weren't allowed to take it off the premises, that was stealing, but you could literally eat as much as you wanted on the premises. So I worked there for nine months, and then I did a sideways move within the recruitment company that I worked for, and I went uh, into town and I did general recruitment. After a few months, realized I hate recruitment and sales, so I asked um, if I could move again within the business to the more admin side of things, because I really like organization and admin. Um, at that point, my boss was not happy with me at all, and she literally sat me down with the senior manager and insisted I hand in my notice immediately. So I did. I then did some temp work for a while, and then I got a job um, doing some customer service um, at a, a place out in Clifton Moor. Actually, this is how I had to answer the telephone. Good afternoon, Premier Global Services, formerly known as Expedite. How may I help you? <laughs> exactly. That is what people did when I answered the phone just laughed at me. <laughs> so worked there for about nine months, um, really low pay, really kind of bitchy work environment. Eventually I um, confronted my line manager about the fact that she was gossiping about me behind my back and she um, marched me off the premises. So that was the end of that job. Thankfully I already had another job lined up working for a Christian organization, um, Alpha, don't tell Christian because he doesn't know that was my background. Um, uh, so then I worked um, there for about nine months before I got made redundant. So this is all before the age of 25. I've been forced to resign. I've been marched off the premises and now I've been made redundant. My CV not looking so great at this point. Um, I then worked three part-time jobs to make up full-time work. I then trained as a teacher. So I did my uh, training year and then I did an NQT year, which I thought went really well. But at the end of that, they didn't renew my contract. So once again, I was jobless. And this was the same year where my father-in-law was dying of cancer and um, he lived in Belfast. So we were flying back and forth to Belfast. And um, my grandma had died. Um, I had a friend that had cancer and was dying. I had a huge outbreak of acne. I had gallstones, even though I don't have a gallbladder. Um, I don't know how that works. And so basically, it was, I was in a really tough spot that summer. I was like, God, I want a job. I, I need a job. But I am at the end of my tether with not having a job. I'm at the end of my tether with never having had a job for, for more than 11 months. And, it, and then I always, for some reason, it comes to an end. So I was asking God, you've got to do something. You've got to do something here. And I had several interviews. And I kept coming second, which was really annoying. Um, and I said, and people were saying to me, why don't you just do supply work? And I was like, oh, no, I can't do supply work. I need to know what I'm doing. I, the idea of, like, waking up every morning and not knowing what you're doing, I can't do it. Um, anyway, that I was, so, that, so I was kind of like Elijah in that, like, I just can't do this anymore. And if you don't give me a job, then I'm just going to go work in a shop. Um, which is totally valid just for anyone that works in a shop. <laughs> That's a great job. It's just I was like, I'm done with this. And then I heard the quiet whisper of God. Why don't you just try it? What, supply work? No, I don't want to do that. Why don't you just give it a go? So something shifted in me 
And on the 1st of September, I phoned uh, the head teacher of the school that I trained at and I said, I'm available for supply work if you want me. And she was like, great, I need you tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, and also every Tuesday for the rest of the year because I've got maternity, someone on maternity leave. And that was the start of the best year I've ever had, genuinely, because I built my supply um, base really slowly. I actually ended up loving going into loads of different schools and working with loads of different people. But more than anything, it released my time to do more church stuff, get more involved with discipling young people and ministry and praying for people, which is actually what I really, really love. So it was his call to action, just like Elijah. God said, you can do this, Hannah. His confidence that I could do it and his reminder that I had community in a school that I'd used to work in. And I think this part of Elijah's story really shows us the human side of Elijah. This series is called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives. And I know it's hard to think of Elijah as ordinary. He was a prophet, and prophets quite often are a little bit unusual. And he also lived 900 years before Jesus was born, so that's a really long time ago. It's hard to imagine what life looked like then. But in the human sense, Elijah was just like us. Just a normal guy living for God, trying to do what God's put on his heart to do. And just like us, he reached the end of his tether. He got to the point where he just felt like he couldn't do it anymore. He was hiding in a cave on a mountain, unsure of what to do next. Haven't we all felt like that sometime? Maybe not as extreme, but to some degree. I've had jobs where I thought every morning, why am I doing this? I've had days with the kids where I've phoned Luke at work and gone, I'm done. I don't want to be a mum anymore. This is awful. <laughs> During my teacher training, and if any of you are teachers, you'll relate to this, by about Easter, I was ready to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to finish the year. Re relationships, friendships, studying, jobs, family life, health, whatever it is, can you relate to Elijah? to feeling like hiding in a cave and not wanting to do it anymore? Can you relate to desperately needing God to show up and do something, to change something, to make things better? And God is right there in whatever it is we're going through. He's right there and he's the gentle whisper that says, hey friend, what are you doing? He's the still, small voice that says, you can do this. He's not the roar, but the mutter that says, why don't you try this? Or what about these people? God spoke to Elijah on the mountain, and it changed Elijah's life. And he went on to fulfill his calling to keep pointing Israel to the one true God. And just like in this story, God speaks to us today. God doesn't only speak to prophets. After Jesus came to earth and left, God sent his Holy Spirit so we can all have conversation and we can all hear his voice. And in a little bit, we're going to have just a bit of quiet so that we can try and listen to what he's saying to us now or we can look back and see where he's spoken to us in the past. But before we do that, I just want to give us some pointers to how we can discern his voice. How do we know if God is speaking in the big dramatic moments or if he's quietly whispering to us. So first of all, just know that God does speak. He longs for relationship with us. 
he's our father, but not the sort of father that sends you off to boarding school with everything you need in your suitcase and says, see you at Christmas. He's the father that wants to you to phone him and text him and tell you what's going on. He's actually the father that comes to university with you and like moves in with you, and it's really awkward. <laughs> that would be so bad, wouldn't it, if your dad actually did that? <laughs> but know that and know that God is talking to you. Secondly, he doesn't differentiate. You can't earn it. God doesn't only speak to important people or chosen people or people that have been Christians for 30 years. He speaks to us even if we don't believe in him. It doesn't faze him. And I said in my story that God whispered to me, why don't you give it a go? But in all honesty, at the time, it wasn't an audible voice that I heard. It was more of a gut feeling that I later could put words to. It was more of a nudge and a change in my spirit. It's not often that we hear an actual audible voice. I often think of God's voice of being like a radio station that's being tuned. And we started our meeting with that sound today, that awkward sound where you're trying to find it. And then suddenly the audio becomes clear. And I think so often for us, it's just about tuning into what God is already saying or doing. And sometimes it's harder to find the right station and sometimes there's too much static on the line. And finally, if you want to know some of the things that God has already said, the way he talks to us, then get to know your Bible because it's God-breathed. And knowing the way that God talks and what he says anchors us to recognize his voice. So like I say, we're going to have a few few minutes in a minute, but I've just got, I've asked a few people in advance to come and share how they've heard God over the years. So, Lydia, do you want to just come up first and tell us your story? Hello. Um, So I've got two sisters, one's older than me and one's younger. Um, And five years ago, within three months of each other, both of them were diagnosed with lifelong illnesses. Um, And in that time, I just felt a weight of guilt, and I wondered, why wasn't it me? Why was it them? Um, And for about a year, this was happening, and I was praying. I felt like I still had all this guilt. Um, and then I slowly felt God saying to me, you need to tell your family how you feel. And I thought, there's no way I'm telling them. I don't want to pass my guilt on to them. They've got their own things to deal with with this. Um, and after about nine months of wrestling with God and saying, I'm not telling them, I eventually did. I gave in. And instantly I just felt free of it. Um, the weight of guilt lifted off of me and I was able to freely go about my life. Yeah, brilliant. Let's clap. Um, what I love about that is that that is God giving Lydia a call to action and a call to community you can do this you can't do it alone Liz your story is from just this week isn't it yeah great so I am going to read it sorry it's a bit longer but I'm going to go as fast as I can okay (laughs) so um last week I had a meeting with um an area manager I work for Starbucks for those that don't know and I had a meeting with an area manager called Sean who I hope that he can help me on my road to progression and possibly mentor me in uh, my role at work. I love my job, um, but I ask myself questions all the time, like, is it right for me? And if I want to progress, do I have the capability to influence and inspire my peers? I look around my community here at G2, and I ask, why did I not get a call to work for the church? Or why did I not get a call to work for a Christian organisation? Or why did I not get sent to a different country 
to um, help people. Maybe I am being asked to do those things and maybe I'm just not listening, but right now, that's not my call. Sean was someone that I'd never met before, but I already, but I already admire him because of what he's done. Um, I went prepared with a question, with a, prep, with a presentation, about a thousand questions and more up my sleeve in case there was awkward silences, because I hate those. On the two and a half um, hour journey drive to meet him, I prayed a lot um, in between listening to Heart FM, I'm not going to lie. But um, <laughs> please give me the tools, Jesus, to inspire, me, to inspire him today. Give me the right words to say. Help me make a good first impression. Help me be the best version of myself. May, uh, may, may he like my presentation and think that it's valuable. Can he be kind and please help me to not feel intimidated? I wanted the whole world. I was like, right, I'm going to meet this guy today and it, I need it to go well and please make it go well and I want everything to go well and if anything goes wrong, then it's just going to be a disaster. So I wanted what Elijah saw. I wanted the hurricane. I wanted the fire. We met and it was all well. He seemed friendly and knowledgeable, and I was put at ease. The question came up from him. So, what do you like to do in your spare time? Um, usually, I would respond with something like, well, I'd talk about my children, or I'd talk about how I spend a lot of time with my friends. And I'm definitely open about talking about my Christianity, but it's not always the first thing I talk about when I'm meeting somebody that um, I, I, I'm, I'm admiring, especially at work in case they think I'm some kind of crazy lady. Um, but very, very freely and easily, with no reservations, I responded with, I'm a practicing Christian, and I like to help out in my church with kids' work. He responded with, oh, really? So am I. <laughs> it's in that moment that I relaxed, because Jesus was right there, right there with me, encouraging and providing exactly what I needed. And that was my whisper, I didn't get the hurricane or the fire, but I got a whisper. There were times in that day where I did, where it did, where I did get flustered, as I'm doing now. <laughs> My presentation wouldn't open. I couldn't get a video that I'd prepared to play. I spilt porridge all over my phone in front of him. We were cleaning that up. Yeah. And, and I did get intimidated when he started coaching me, and he did do that. He was like, well, what would you do, Liz? What would you do, Liz? And I was like, hmm. Um, so... So, you know, I didn't, I didn't get everything that I wanted from that day, but I got, I got real encouragement and I got my whisper. This leader in, in my workplace is also a leader in his church and we talked about how we get to be disciples every day in our teams um, and with the people that we meet. He encouraged me that I'm not in the wrong job and I'm making a difference every day. In my 10 years working for Starbucks, I've never, ever met or met a leader that's been a Christian. The time I meet someone chosen for me to possibly be my mentor, he is a Christian. I can, I can, I can want and I do ask for a lot, but I don't need it. I just need confidence to believe I can do something amazing. I just need that whisper. I just need to know that especially the things that mean a lot to me, he is in those things and he wants to encourage me. That is so, so encouraging. Thank you, Liz. That is brilliant. And again, that is community. That is God giving us what we need. Thanks, Jean.
Um, a few years ago, when both Jeff and I had retired, we planned a six-month trip uh, to New Zealand, followed by Australia. Fantastic. And um, we hired a camper van, just a small camper van, saw some amazing places, had wonderful walks and hikes. Um, after three months, uh, still in New Zealand, I just went over on my ankle and it broke in several places. Um, I knew it was broken straight away. We, we went to hospital uh, and I had to wait for surgery for it pinning and plating. And while I was waiting, I heard a deep whisper or uh, just a clear voice deep within saying, I don't want you to grumble and complain about this. Oh, right, so, um, <laughs> so I had the surgery, and for a month, um, I had a wheelchair, and then crutches after a couple of weeks, and quite a bit of extra equipment that we were loaned, all to pile into this small camper van, and Jeff obviously pushing me around in the wheelchair. Uh, plus, we had to curtail the trip, we had to come home and know Australia. <laughs> But um, I learned, well, I, I really was grateful. We had excellent medical care, really kind, helpful staff um, while we were there. And I, I learned as well to be grateful for God's natural healing, because my ankle healed without any problems. Um, apart from that, I don't know why it happened. You know, there was no real reason for it. Um, but I am thankful um, that just hearing that voice taught me how to handle misfortune because it happens to us all at some point in life. And I'm just grateful for that word right at the beginning so that I didn't grumble for the next month. <laughs> Thanks, Jean. That's great. Hi. I was reminded... Um, of how a few months ago, uh, Matt was taken into hospital for emergency surgery. Um, it was all a bit traumatic. And I remember I was in the kitchen, um, just crying out to God. So God just, it was all a bit of a shock, didn't know what's going on. I just wanted God to just say, he's going to make everything better. He's going to make it okay. I just was really wanting God just to take it all away. Um, and as I was praying, there was a song playing and the words just really stood out for me. And the words, you might know the song, was, um, Take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. And I felt that that last line, he's in the waiting, was what God wanted me to take hold of. And I didn't know it at the time, but the next few months, Matt would be in terrible pain and unable to do anything. But because I'd heard quite clearly God say, I'm in the waiting, I'm in this, that it really gave me what I needed to trust him. It gave me the courage to persevere. And I just knew that God was in this. No matter what happened, I knew that God was in it with us. And ultimately, he's standing at the back now. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Luke. Uh, a, few of, uh, a few of you will know this. About five and a bit years ago, I went into hospital in a load of pain um, and uh, ended up being in A&E for an awful long time in an awful lot of pain. That then 
uh, ended up being a few days in hospital uh, on various different types of painkillers and um, I was very confused about what was going on. I was in a lot of abdominal pain and I didn't know why. The doctors didn't know why. I was getting moved around from different room and wards to place and getting scanned and then I was on so much painkiller I can't really remember what happened and it was all very confusing. Um, and then in, eventually they operated uh, and they didn't know what they were going to find. What they found was a tumour in my bowel and I had bowel cancer. Um, and so I woke up from that uh, surgery uh, with a colostomy. And so then that whole thing, getting my brain around the fact that I've now got a bowel that pops out my stomach was very bizarre, very hard to get around my head around. And uh, that time in hospital, they would let me leave um, after a few days after that. So I was in hospital for about seven or eight days. And then I got home. Uh, and the kids were confused. We had two kids under two at the time. And Hannah was confused. And my mum was around. And then Hannah's mum was around. And it was just an absolute whirlwind. And I'd physically been through a lot of trauma as well. And I remember lying uh, on my bed. Uh, and it was the, probably the first time. You know, when you're in hospital, there's just people around the whole time in the ward. There's people there awake in the night and things. So I felt like this is the first time I've actually just been on my own. Although I feel like I've been really lonely the whole time in hospital and I just burst into tears and I lay there on my bed and just cried my eyes out um, and it, whilst I was crying I actually felt the physical presence of someone sitting at the end of my bed and I genuinely I, th I thought there was someone sitting there so I opened my eyes to I thought what if I see Jesus I, I actually <laughs> thought I might anyway there was, I could, there was no one sitting there but I could feel this presence sitting there feel like as if as it was as if Jesus was sitting at the end of my bed sort of almost felt the bed move and um, so uh, I closed my eyes again and I just felt Jesus take me through all the different places that I'd been in right from the sitting on a stack of chairs in A&E uh, through to that ward and then that ward and then he was like and then you're in another one and you can't remember that and then I remember him being, showing me this surgery and he was in this blue scrub outfits that they wear uh, with a mask on and he was in there seeing it all happen to me, being in the recovery area in an, one of the wards and he was just going, I was with you, I was with you, I was with you, I was with you all along the different parts of the journey. Um, but it happened when I hit my absolute rock bottom of loneliness and just crying out to God going, what is going on in this storm? I feel lost on my own and confused. Um, and that's when I felt him really physically be with me and, and show me all the different times he was. Brilliant. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> Rachel. Um, so I guess uh, last term, to use a biblical term, I was sort of going through like a wilderness, so a time of like real hardship and trials. Um, I was struggling, it was affecting my academic studies, I was struggling to eat healthily and perform regular exercise, I was struggling to enjoy just like the simple pleasures of life, um, and so it just, over and over again, just really hard, and in that, I really struggled to sort of maintain my relationship with God from like my side, and I just had to say to God, like, this has got to come from you, I'm giving myself over to you, but I, I don't physically have the strength to keep up our side like my side of the relationship and in it I just sort of his whisper like I found him just say like um I've got this like just trust me um you'll come through this I'm not gonna let you down and so that was just like the t like tiny bit of string that I held on to all the way through the term 
And um, now sort of I've come through that time of wilderness and I'm in like a, a time of like peace and coherence in my relationship with God. And now I guess the whisper for me is because I've now been thinking, oh, am I getting too comfortable in where I am in my place and in my relationship with God right now? And again, I can feel him saying like right now I'm telling you to rest. Stop worrying about it. I want you to rest after what you've been through. And like when the time comes, I'll call you out of your comfort zone. Um, so I guess it's just to say that, like, that whisper is there, whether you're sure of it at first or not. Um, just hang on to it. Brilliant. Thanks so much. So are you going to... You were going to share. I was going to share. Um, <laughs> so basically, some of you may know, I finished university. I was in my final year of university, and um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do afterwards, which everyone's been there. It's a bit of a disaster. I'd had an extra year because I did French and German, so I was abroad for my third year, and I was just like, I don't know. I think I want to be a teacher, but I don't know if I want to go into that straight away. I hadn't had a gap year, so I didn't have any time out of education, and I'd, I applied for the PGCE because my parents were like, well, you need to do something, So I, and I got a place, and I thought, oh, goodness me I don't know what I'm going to do and I'd gotten really involved in G2 and the kids work here and I thought I'd really like to give some time to the church my parents aren't Christians so they didn't really get that at all and I was like I think I want to do children's work um but I've got this place to be a teacher and for the first time in my life I really felt God saying it's it's okay like both decisions are fine it's your choice and actually sometimes when we kind of grow our relationship with God and we mature into that and he kind of trusts us with some of those decisions himself and he doesn't give us the answers all the time and in the end I chose to give a, a year two three to the church and uh, run the children's work here and now I'm a teacher so you can do both things and sometimes God gives us that decision <laughs> well done yeah. thank you